for this morning's scripture reading. It's in Matthew chapter 15. Pastor Chris will be speaking to us from Matthew 15, continuing in the series Altered. We'll be starting in verse 21. If you need a Bible, please feel free to use a pew Bible located in front of you. You can find today's reading on page 976. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21, reading through verse 28. Follow along as I read. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Father, we come. Lord, we praise you. We thank you, Lord. Even as the nations rage, as we sang and as we see in your word, Lord, you are on your throne. You are the victory. Death has been swallowed up because of Jesus. Father, I pray for each person that can hear the sound of my voice this morning, Lord, that they would have an encounter with you and your risen son this morning. Lord, no matter where they are in their life, no matter what they've done, Lord, you can change hearts and you alone. And we ask that this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. 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 Oh, that was good worship. Amen. We continue to worship through the preaching of his word. So I hope you keep your Bibles open. We want you to see the message in your Bible and not just your notes as you do take notes and follow along. Well, have you ever been desperate for someone you care about? Desperate to see them be delivered from maybe a physical disease or spiritual bondage. Maybe you tried everything you could think of to change that desperate situation. What did you do when you finally realized that you were utterly hopeless and helpless to change that situation? Who did you cry out to for help? I think we'd all agree this morning there's a lot of desperate people in a lot of desperate places in this world this morning. The images of the war in Ukraine are heart-wrenching, and now we're praying as a church for our global partners, the Schmitz and the tropical cyclone on Mozambique Island. Many people are in desperate situations this morning. No roof over their heads, no food in their stomachs, no hope for the future. Where will they turn and who will they cry out to for help? Yes, we can send money and weapons to win wars and we can provide material relief to a physical disaster. But those things don't heal wounded hearts. They don't free the demon-possessed. They don't turn 
bitterness into blessing. They don't give eternal life as a free gift. Only a gospel encounter with Jesus can do that. And that's what this series is all about. Encounter Jesus to be changed. We've talked about what's happening over there, and we should care. But what about right here? What about in this room? (coughs) Excuse me. In your own hearts and in your own homes. Are you or someone you love in a desperate situation right now? It's going to be one of those mornings. Gwen and I know someone facing cancer, living an immoral lifestyle far from God. That's desperate. Some of you have family situations that are nothing short of desperate. I've been there. I know in my own small ways, but big to me, what it is to come to a point where you just look up and you realize, I am helpless to change this, and if God doesn't intervene, it is hopeless, and it will not change. In fact, it's going to get worse. Who do you call at those times? Who do you turn to? Yes, we know the junior church answer is God. But does he hear us? Does he care? And how do we know for sure that he'll answer? Well, this encounter that Dane read for us in Matthew 15, 21 through 28, between Jesus and a Canaanite woman is all about a desperate woman who has a great need, but she is helpless to change it, and she is hopeless unless God himself delivers her daughter. The question that this passage raises is one that I think all of us can be familiar with in the, in, here today. <coughs> and it's this. How does Jesus deliver desperate people? How does Jesus deliver desperate people? Let's walk through this awesome encounter by looking at the circumstances, the characters, the conversation, and the climax. And let's see the answer to that question. First of all, let's look at the circumstances of the encounter. They're given for us very plainly by Matthew in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why does Matthew tell us this This these circumstances, before we get into the encounter. (coughs) Jesus withdraws to Tyre and Sidon for at least three reasons. First of all, to reject the spiritual blindness of Israel's leaders. In the first part of chapter 15, Jesus has had a hostile encounter with the Pharisees and the scribes of Israel. They question him, and they are rejecting him as their Messiah. They are like Nicodemus that we learned about last week in this series. They came from Jerusalem, and they have come with all their spiritual credentials and with all of their Jewish privileges. But they lack what is absolutely necessary. They are not born again from above, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. So even though they come from Jerusalem, and go to Jesus up in northern Israel. Jesus is up to the north. 
They have no faith in the living word, even though they know the written word. So Jesus withdraws from them. And he goes even farther north. He said, I'm getting away from you guys. And so he goes to Tyre, which is about 25 miles farther north than Galilee. And Sidon, which is 24 miles about farther north than that. And so he withdraws from them and he goes to the north into Canaanite country. And he takes his disciples with him. And that's the second reason he withdraws. To sharpen the spiritual dullness of his, desire, of his disciples. See, he's rejecting the spiritual hardness of the Israel's leaders and saying, I'm withdrawing from you because you are rejecting me. But he's wanting to sharpen his disciples, so he takes them with him. You see, the problem was the 12 disciples were being influenced more by the Jewish leaders than they were by their own master. And you see that in the previous uh, encounter with the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples who were like, hey, I think you offended them. And Jesus is like, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both are going to fall into the pit, the pit of God's judgment. And Peter says, what are you saying? And Paul says to him, or uh, Jesus says to him, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand? You see, listen, unlike the Jewish leaders, the disciples were following the living word, but they were still spiritually dull, partially blind to him and his heart for people. So Jesus withdraws to teach his disciples to see people the way he sees them not the way that the unbelieving see them. And this brings us to the third reason he withdraws, and it's this, to emphasize the spiritual deadness of all people. You see, you got to understand what Tyre and Sidon represents. Even though this had long been Gentile country, originally it belonged to the tribe of Asher, who failed to conquer it. It's a place of Israel's disobedience and lack of faith. We know that we should keep this in mind because Matthew uses the ancient names of that place, Tyre and Sidon, and he refers to the woman as a Canaanite, which was an old term that he pulls out of the Old Testament past. The Canaanites, Israel's enemies. And this location of Tyre and Sidon should also bring to mind the Old Testament stories of the prophets Elijah and Elisha who were sent there to the same region because that's where Jezebel, that wicked woman, and Ahab, her wicked husband, reigned over Israel in their unbelief. And God sent his prophets there to bless and minister to Gentile women and Gentile widows who had greater faith than the people of Israel in that day. And guess what? It's starting all over again. It's starting all over again. You see, this was a place known for Israel's unbelief, Israel's apostasy. It was filled with Israel's pagan enemies. The very place where people are supposed to be spiritually blind, no word from God, spiritually dull, no knowledge of God, 
in spiritually dead, no life from God, the verse says in verse 22 in your ESV, and behold, and behold, a Canaanite woman comes to him. So let's look at this most unlikely of places and this most unlikely of people who are go- who, who is going to be praised for her great faith. Let's look at the characters in the encounter. And let's see if you can see yourself and if I can see myself in this story. First of all, you see the desperate Canaanite woman. Look at verse 22. And behold... A Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly, severely tormented by a demon. Notice, first of all, that she's a Canaanite woman in a pagan place filled with pagan people. She lacks all the credentials of the Pharisees. Think about how Pastor Bruce mentioned the credentials of Nicodemus last week. If you take Nicodemus from last week and the Pharisees and compare and contrast them to this woman, everything they had, she had nothing. You could take eight different ways in which what they had as spiritual privileges, spiritual access, she had none of this. She was a desperate Canaanite woman who wants to see her daughter delivered from a very cruel demon possession. She is helpless and hopeless to deliver her own daughter, who no doubt encountered these demons through the demonic culture that she lived in. Yet behold, she comes to the king that Israel is rejecting, that the disciples are following, but they're clueless about who they follow. Who is he? And who? what is his heart for people? And she comes and she keeps on coming, loudly crying out as she follows after them. Look again at verse 23. The disciples are annoyed. She keeps shouting after us. Literally, the Greek says, from behind us. So she's like, she's just on their heels and she keeps crying out, help, help, show mercy to me, son of David, Lord, master. Now, stop and ask yourself a question here. What should you do when you're clueless like the disciples or you're desperate like this woman? What should you do? You should do what they do. Keep following Jesus. Yeah, but I'm clueless. I don't know what's going on. I'm not sure who he's following. Yeah, but I'm desperate and I'm, I'm, I'm losing strength and I see no light. Keep following Jesus. Now, why do we keep following him? Because he's the second character in the story. First of all of them, but here we go. The merciful Jewish king. He's the second one we're introduced to. The merciful Jewish king. Notice how the woman addresses her. Verse 22, Lord, son of David. Listen, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And Jesus is merciful to the desperate, both Jew and Gentile. Ironically, this pagan Canaanite woman 
far from Israel, and even farther from Jerusalem, you know, where all the spiritual kids hang out, where the Bible scholars are located, far from all of that, knows who Jesus is, what Jesus can do, and she knows his heart is merciful to the desperate and the undeserving. Do you know that Jesus? How is this possible? Humanly, the fame of Jesus' name was spreading due to his message and his miracles. You can go through the book of Matthew. It's spreading far and wide. She had heard of him and of his miracles. But supernaturally, what is taking place? God is graciously working in her heart. You say, how do you know that? Well, if you go to chapter 16, Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're right. And guess what? No one taught you this except for God. You didn't learn it from your daddy. You didn't learn it in synagogue school. You didn't learn it from a rabbi. God has worked sovereignly in your heart. God is sovereignly working in this woman's heart. The fame of Jesus' name has spread, and the grace of God is at work in the heart of this pagan woman, so she knows Jesus is Lord, and he is the son of David, the king of Israel. Remember, she's a Canaanite. And that introduces us to the third characters in this story, and it's the uncaring Jesus followers. The uncaring Jesus followers, they enter the story once and they speak once, but we need to take note. Like, look at verse uh, 23, but he did not answer her and his disciples came and implored him saying, send her away because she keeps shouting after us. Now, notice, like the Pharisees, they're blind to the master's mission. And they're uncaring regarding people who are different from them, though desperate and right in front of them. Like the, they, they're like them. And listen, they care only for themselves, not those God cares about. Why do I say that? She's begging for mercy, and they come to Jesus. They don't move towards her. They move to Jesus and beg him to send her away. Why? She's irritating. She's bugging us. She's following us. This is embarrassing. Send her away. She comes to Jesus in desperation. And instead of moving toward her, they move toward Jesus to send her away. They don't have their master's heart yet to show mercy to the desperate. They see their master as a means to their own ends. Get this. She's coming and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I leave myself to your answer. They go to the master and tell him what to do. Do we call him Lord? And then in our prayers, tell him what to do. They're telling the Lord what to do in order to make their life easier, to make it more comfortable, for life to be the way they want it. But what of the desperate woman and her child? 
They don't humbly come to Jesus to do His will. They have not yet submitted their will to their master's will. And they lack a heart for the nations. They have not yet committed to the master's mission to reach the unreached, anyone, anywhere, anytime. So I ask you this morning, as we look at these three characters, do you see yourself in them? Do you see yourself? Some of us are desperate this morning, and we know it. And you know what? Some of us are like the disciples, and we are desperate, and we don't know it. You know what the good news is? No matter which category you're in, the good news is Jesus delivers the desperate and is long-suffering with those that don't know it yet. Isn't that good? That is so good. So now we're ready for the conversation. We've seen the characters. We understand the circumstances. What about the conversation of the encounter? This is where it gets interesting. Maybe you've already been startled by what you have read. Look at verse, uh, look, we'll pick it up in verse 24. They say, send her away in verse 23. But he answered and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. He answered and said, it's not good or right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus said that. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs, the little dogs, feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Wow. What in the world is going on with that? Did Jesus just call that woman a dog? Jesus? Well, let's find out. Let's find out. Some people think he did. Some people say that Jesus is a terrible person in this passage. Is Jesus a terrible person in this passage? One commentator actually said, Jesus is displaying the worst kind of chauvinism. Calling this woman a dog is simply atrocious. I read a sermon this week too by, well, not much of it, but uh, enough. I read a sermon by one woman who is a, is a feminist bishop that said Jesus was a terrible chauvinist, but he changed his mind. And you know why? Because the Canaanite woman was persistent. She changed Jesus' mind. Okay. Now let me say three things about that. First of all, such people are reading their own views into the Bible. You find none of that in this passage. Secondly, Jesus does not call the woman a dog directly. He is speaking to her by way of a parable. And we see that in her own response, she understands what he's doing. And guess what? She's not offended by it. And if she's not offended by it, I don't think we have the right to be offended by it either. She gets what he's saying. She understands the meaning of the parable. Jesus also, thirdly, does not use the word for dog in the, in, 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 in the Greek here, the word for dog does not refer to a stray dog that is dirty, dangerous, and deadly. You know, running around, feeding off garbage, bite you, you got rabies, and you're dead. Instead, he uses a Greek word for a little dog, the family pet. 
that lives inside the home with the family and lies under the table when you eat. It is the family pet. Now, let's be clear. I'm not trying to say that this wasn't a shocking statement. Are you with me? Anyone in that Middle Eastern culture referencing dogs is going to see that as an insult, as unclean. But Jesus' point is this. He's trying to help this Canaanite woman who is a Gentile and who is living in a pagan place, helping her understand that there is a radical difference between God's covenant people, Israel, and the Gentile nations who are outside of that covenant and have no claim on Israel's king. Think about Ephesians 2 where Paul says to the Gentile Christians, when you, before you came to Christ, you were strangers to the covenant promises. You were outsiders who lived far from the blessings of God. And you you were without God and without hope in the world. That is what Jesus is saying to her. So why is Jesus actually saying these things? He's not a terrible person. Well, number two, Jesus is staying true to his mission from the Father. He's staying true. He's testifying that this is why the Father has sent me, to the Jew first, then the Gentile. There's an order in God's redemptive plan. Israel was the chosen people. Israel is promised their son of David, their king. And now that Jesus has come as the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he is presenting himself as king, the priority goes to the nation of Israel. But ironically, what does the nation do? They reject their king. They scorn their priority. They scorn and reject their privileges And that is going to open the door to a mission to the Gentiles that's going to come later through the church. Now, back in chapter 10 of Matthew, Jesus sends the 12 disciples to only the lost house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel using the same phrase that you see in verse 24. Look there in your Bible. He says the same phrase in chapter 10, and he says, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here he says to this woman, I have been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what is he saying here? We know that later he's going to send the 70 to the Gentiles as well. But what's he doing here? The answer, I think, is in two things. It's in that phrase, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. First of all, house reminds us of the covenant of David in 2 Samuel 7, where God says, I will make you a house, a dynasty as a king. He's referencing, we're supposed to be thinking, oh, house of Israel, yeah, kingdom, kingdom. Also, think of lost sheep. Think of lost sheep. David was a shepherd before he was king. And before coming king, and Israel kings in the Old Testament were considered and called shepherds. What is he saying? He's saying, look, you rightly identified me. I am the king of Israel. But understand this, I am the king of Israel. And I am calling the lost sheep. My priority in my earthly ministry 
is calling the, is regathering and hopefully redeeming the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is telling this woman that his father sent him first to the nation of Israel as the promised king, son of David. They are the chosen people. His first priority is to regather the lost sheep of Israel into his house and rule over them as their king. And Jesus is making sure that this Canaanite woman who is asking for mercy, begging, imploring, understands that she and any other Gentile pagan outside of the covenant has no right to his blessings and to God's promises apart from mercy, apart from mercy. And what is she asking for? Mercy, mercy. But even though Israel was his priority, Jesus never turned away a Gentile in his earthly misery, never once. In fact, there's only two people in the whole four Gospels that Jesus praises them for great faith. They're both found in Matthew, and guess what? They're both Gentiles. In Matthew 8, the Roman centurion. In Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman. And that's another reason why Jesus says what he says to her. Thirdly, Jesus is testing her faith. Jesus is testing her faith. He's not taunting her. He's not a terrible person. Far from rejecting the woman, far from shaming this woman, Jesus is revealing her faith to others. He already knows what's in her heart. He wants us to know. And he wants his dull disciples to know the kind of faith that is great in the kingdom of God. He is revealing her faith. He is drawing out her faith, first by his silence. And let me say to you in your desperate situation this morning, have you been praying and you're not getting answers? Have you been praying and it seems like heaven is silent? God hears. He's testing your faith. He's revealing your faith. He's making sure that you're not just coming to him for what you can get from him, not just get me out of this jam, Jesus, but you're coming to him because he is king and because he is merciful and you're going to keep coming until he answers. Even when the disciples snub her, This only serves to strengthen her faith. So she approaches him and bows down. They say, send her away. And Jesus says, it's not your time. And she says, okay, I'll bow down and I will come to you. What great faith is that? Jesus is strengthening her faith. When Jesus says, it's not your turn, she doesn't bow up and get proudful and resentful and offended. She bows down and says, indeed, you are Lord. Your will be done, not mine. But I'm still asking. I'm still asking. You see, ultimately, even when Jesus says in verse 26, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. The woman's faith is revealed and strengthened even further when she says in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I understand your mission. I understand the priority. I know I don't have a claim on you. 
But even the little dogs in the palace of a king get to feed on the crumbs that fall from the master's table. In other words, I know my place and I know I have no rights. I know I have no claims on the kingdom of God, but I come desperate, show me mercy. And this leads us to what Jesus is ultimately doing. He is teaching his disciples. He is teaching his disciples. And he's saying to his disciples, are you prejudiced or are you compassionate? Are you racist? Are you ethnocentric? Are you centered on Jews? Or can you see God's heart for the other races and nations of the people? Jesus is reminding them that the true king resists the proud and their good works, but he gives grace to the humble through faith. Now is not the time for the mission to the Gentiles, but this is my heart. This is my heart. And after I am crucified, and after I am resurrected, and after I ascend, and after I send my spirit, then there will be a mission to the nations. But my heart has never changed. That's why Elijah and Elijah were sent to Tyre and Sidon. Because God has always had a heart to bless all the families of the earth through the family of Abraham. One day, you disciples, one day you will see and you will care and you will lead my church to reach the nations. And now we're ready for the climax of the encounter. The climax comes to us in verse 28. Jesus has revealed her faith. Jesus has strengthened her faith. Now Jesus is going to bless her faith. Then Jesus said to her, verse 20 said, Oh, woman, which is a, a, a term of respect and honor. Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. And her daughter is not present. Her daughter is distant. And that same thing happened in the Roman centurion. Jesus is praising, honoring, recognizing the great faith of only two people in his whole earthly ministry. Neither one of them were Jewish. The Roman centurion in the Canaanite woman. They both were asking miracles on the behalf of someone else. Don't miss that. The Roman centurion for his servant, the Canaanite woman for her daughter. And both are the only two miracles in the Gospels of Jesus healing from a distance. You see, here's the point. Great faith brings great needs to the great king who loves to show mercy to anyone who is desperate this morning. Anyone, anywhere, any place who calls out in desperation and takes their great need by great faith to the great king will receive mercy. Now, what are the characteristics of great faith? Because if you're like me, I'm like, uh, I, I don't think I qualify. Right? What are the four characteristics? Let me give them to you quickly. Here they are. Behold 
the desperate plea. Behold this desperate plea. And please understand that behold. Some of our translations don't translate those little words. Hey, every word's inspired. That word's key. Because when you see behold in the Bible, it says pay attention. But more than that, God is working a miracle. Behold the desperate plea with the empty hand of faith. Lord, have mercy on me. This same desperate plea happens more than once in Matthew. You see it repeated in Matthew where the blind men come to call out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us. It's the desperate cry of faith from someone who knows I'm helpless to do this myself. I'm hopeless unless God himself answers. It's not surprising that this cry of desperation has become a part of the church's liturgy down through church history. Lord, have mercy on us. It echoes through the ages of church history. Great faith knows that we must come to the Lord with the empty hands of faith. We don't come like Nicodemus and the Pharisees. We don't come with our credentials. We don't come with our rights. We don't come with our demands, wanting comfort and ease for us while we are blind to the needs in front of us. No demanding, no deserving, no listing of credentials, no claiming of rights, just a desperate plea of faith. Do you pray like this? Are you desperate enough to pray like this? Do you realize that a little bit after this in chapter 15, Peter's going to try to walk on water and he does for a little bit and he starts drowning and you know what he prays? Lord, save me. Shortest prayer, quickly answered. Think about Jonah in the belly of the well. Here's what he said. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice. Think of the tax collector who stood afar off from God at the temple and made this simple prayer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner that I am. Listen, this is what great faith does. Great faith is aware of our great need and comes to Jesus with no claims except show me mercy. Show me mercy. Secondly, the characteristic, behold the spiritual perception. Behold the spiritual perception. This woman knew who Jesus was and she knew who she was putting her faith in and that only he was able to deliver her out of her desperate situation. He, she calls her in this short passage, Lord, four times. Three, every time she met, talks to him, she calls him Lord. And then the master of the house is the same word for Lord. She calls him the son of David. I know you're the rightful king of Israel. I know that you're going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron of judgment. That's why I need your mercy. I need your mercy. Great faith is placed in the great king who loves to show mercy. Great faith is not about how great you are, but how great he is. Great faith is not the size of your faith. It's the size of your God that you put it in. Listen, you can have faith the size of a tiny mustard seed. And when you put it in the great king, you can move mountains. Great faith understands that we are like this woman. All of us are like this woman. We are spiritual beggars at the table of the master. Great faith 
is faith that places the mustard seed of faith in a great God who sent his son as the God-man who is the king of Israel. Great faith sees who Jesus is and what only he can do for the lost, for the enslaved, for the desperate, for dying sinners like you and me. And how does great faith respond to the great king? Third characteristic, behold the humble posture. Behold the humble posture. She humbly asks for mercy. Have mercy on me. Mercy means you don't deserve what you're asking for. Have mercy on me. She humbly cries out to Jesus, You're Lord, I'm not. You're king, I'm your slave. Third, she humbly follows behind Jesus, not worthy to be in his presence. Remember how Nicodemus snuck in at night and treated Jesus as his equal? Not this woman. No, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm not worthy to be equal to your disciples. I'm not equal to them. I am following behind until you grant me access. Listen, folks, this isn't about male, female, chauvinism. This is about all of us. All of us are unworthy of his presence. None of us are equal to just march into his presence and make our needs known. We come only by the blood of Jesus. We come only as we are like this woman, recognizing, have mercy on me, O Lord. And then she humbly bows down before his feet. I wonder if she kissed him. It doesn't say it does. But in Psalm 2, the psalmist says, kiss the son, lest he be angry to the Gentile nations. And then she humbly accepts her position. When Jesus says, hey, uh, listen, the children get the bread. She says, that's all right. I accept my position. She's not offended. She's not resentful. She understands she's outside of God's covenant program. Great faith is a free gift, and no one deserves it, and no one can earn it. So behold, this woman came to Jesus as the king of Israel. Why? Because God gives grace to the humble. And then fourthly, behold the diligent persistence. Behold the diligent persistence. Great faith persists in praying, trusting, waiting, and watching. She persists despite Jesus' silence. In verse 23, it's a test of faith. Do we quit praying when we don't immediately get what we want or the answer we want? Do we turn on God, blame God for his silence, become bitter towards him? Hey, great faith persists in praying even when there's no answers. She persists in spite of the disciples snubbing in verse 23. And that's a profound truth because she didn't come to worship them. She came to worship the one they were following. How Jesus' disciples behave doesn't change who Jesus is. Have you been hurt by Christians? Have you been hurt by his church? It's real. It hurts. And it can leave scars. But we don't follow the followers. We follow the king. We follow the king. 
sheep persists in spite of Jesus' statement in verse 24, in spite of his statement in verse 26. The Canaanite woman knows her place as a Gentile, has no rights to covenant blessings before Israel. But she also knows that the master will show mercy even to the family pet and throw them the bread from the table. You say, how much bread for the Gentiles? Well, in the rest of this passage, right after this, Jesus returns to Gentile country and he feeds over 4,000 Gentiles and they eat until they're satisfied. This isn't about Jesus shaming. This isn't about Jesus uh being a terrible person. This is about Jesus showing mercy to the undeserving, and he's going to feed them a feast. And he's going to, boom, recognize the great faith of this woman. Do you have a great need this morning? Then place great faith in the great king who loves to show mercy to people like you, people who are desperate, people like me, no matter who they are or where they come from. It doesn't matter what your spiritual legacy is. So what's the application? And I just, there's so much in this. But I, did, I wanted you to see this application. And it's so clear. By If it's not clear by now, then I haven't done my job in the spirit. Well, he'll, he'll work in you. Look at what it says. First of all, remember that faith is found in unlikely places and people. You know why? Because it's all of grace. doesn't matter where you come. Don't, don't think this morning you're too sinful to cry out to him. Don't think this morning that who you're praying for is so lost that Jesus can't find them. Don't think that they are so sinful Jesus can't save them. You will find great faith in the most unlikely places and people because it's all of grace. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Secondly, be quick to come to Jesus in your desperation. It's the only way to come. It's the only way to come. If you don't come to Jesus in desperation, then you don't understand your need. And if you don't understand your need, you don't understand the great king. But the good news is he's long-suffering with those that don't get it, like the disciples. So if you're not desperate this morning and you think you can get by without Jesus this morning, could I offer you to cry out and ask him to show, how, show you how desperate you really are? It could be the turning point. It could be your encounter this morning. Place your faith in the king, not his followers. Man, this is huge because he's the only one that will never fail you. Listen, don't let erring Christians, don't let uncaring Christians, don't let issues that are in a church, and our church is no different. You're going to get your toes stepped on. We get hurt. We get a fan. Pastors get hurt, members get hurt, visitors get hurt. It all happens, but it's not about us. It's about him. I am ultimately following Jesus, not his followers. He will never leave me nor forsake me in my desperation. He is gentle and lowly of heart. And then finally, act in faith to reach the un 
reach nations. Why? Because now it's our mission. It wasn't Jesus' mission when he was on earth. It's our mission. We're on earth. He's in heaven. Matthew ends with the Great Commission, and that's what we are to do. And therefore, in our church, we pray for Mozambique. We pray for Ukraine. We pray for Russia. We pray for the nations. And we give our resources. We give, we pray, we send, we go. Because Jesus has a heart for the nations. So I want to invite you this morning. Cry out with great faith to our great king. He's merciful to the desperate. And guess what? He's long-suffering with those that don't yet get it. With your heads bowed, I want you to cry out this morning. How could we not end by just right now, right where you're at, cry out in desperation. Cry out for mercy. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, have mercy on me as your disciple. I'm, I've been uncaring. I'm spiritually dull. I've been apathetic. Show mercy to me. Open my eyes. Change my heart. Grant me the repentance unto life. And Father, let me leave this service this morning more like you. And if I'm lost, Lord, find me. Save me as I place my faith in you as the God-man, the resurrected Son of God who grants saving mercy to the most unlikely of people in the most unlikely of places. Father in heaven, we praise you for the mercy of your Son and for the power of the Spirit to change hearts and for this Canaanite woman whose great faith is teaching the nations of your heart of compassion. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.